Uh, some of you may remember the Simon and Garfunkel song from the 60s that begins with a really uh, curious and, and kind of haunting greeting. Hello, darkness, my old friend. With the possible exception of criminals, though, people rarely think of darkness as a friend, as uh, an ally. Nobody wants to be in the dark about what's going on around them. Nor do we, we like being in a dark place emotionally. On the other hand, uh, we enjoy conversations that we find illuminating or uh, that enlighten us. We love to be around uh, people, we're drawn to people with radiant smiles and sunny personalities. Um, we say that people beam with joy. Um, and, and you can see how you, we use those images, light and darkness. They seem to be uh, pretty much universal symbols. We find them in cultures all around the world. Light, for the most part, is associated with goodness, with happiness, with life. While darkness uh, tends to be associated with sadness, with evil and uh, even with death. Um, there have been a, a number of books. If you were an English major in, in college, you probably learned to pay attention to symbolism in novels and so on, and, and many, many novels. Uh, the Heart of Darkness, The Scarlet Letter, and on and on we could go. Uh, use images of light and darkness to make important points about what it means to be a human being. And we see the same thing in movies. You know, movies are uh, a medium that actually depends on the use of light, but, um, but you see light and darkness played out uh, as kind of a subtext um, in, in movies that we see. Think for, for a minute about um, Princess Leia in the very first Star Wars movie. What's, how is she dressed? White gown. And then when we first see Darth Vader, all black. And we see that in, in all kinds of movies. But, but when Jesus announces, I am the light of the world, uh, he isn't just drawing on you know, these kind of um, universal tropes or on, on conventional wisdom. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's really taking things to a whole new level. Now, uh, just like in real estate, um, you know, the key to real estate is location, location, location. Um, I think it's very helpful when we read the Bible to think context, 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 because oftentimes the context will really illuminate what's going on in a particular passage. When Jesus speaks the words, I am the light of the world, one of the things that we need to realize is when and where he's saying that. Uh, during this particular time in Jewish history, one of the most important uh, and one of the most festive feast days of the entire Jewish year uh, was a day, or a week rather, called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. In uh, Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And uh, it, it was one of three pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar, commanded by God in the Old Testament, uh, the expectation was that every able-bodied, uh, at least Jewish man, if not the entire family, 
who lived within a reasonable distance of Jerusalem, was expected to travel to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate this particular festival. Now, the temple doesn't exist anymore, as we, we all know. It was destroyed in 70 AD um, by uh, the Romans. But that doesn't mean that uh, Sukkot isn't celebrated anymore. Jewish families continue to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths to this day. It takes place in the fall, around this time of year. could fall any time, because it's a lunar calendar, it could fall any time between late September and mid-October. And one of the characteristic things about this particular festival is that it involves people building temporary structures so that they can remember, and actually so they can relive the story of the Exodus, and especially uh, they can relive the years that their ancestors lived in the wilderness. This is a contemporary celebration of the uh, Feast of Sukkot. Now, some of you know a couple weeks ago I was uh, in um, Colorado on vacation with uh, Peg and, and some of our friends, and one of the things we did is we took a little road trip to look at this one particular resort that our friends go to from time to time, and while we were walking around, really beautiful place, it was, you know, autumn leaves and all this kind of stuff, as we were walking along, I, I saw this, this structure, and it was like exposed two by fours, and it just had some kind of plywood uh, on it, and I said, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if they're building something. It's kind of between season. It wasn't summer. It's not the ski season yet. I wonder, you know, what they're they're up to here. So I went over to investigate, walked inside, realized I could just walk inside this stuff. I, I thought I was going to see a bunch of building equipment. Instead, I saw all these tables that were laid out, and there were candlesticks on, at the tables and place settings, and um, and I looked up, and instead of a roof, I saw, you know, kind of branches that were covering where a, a roof would be. And I very quickly realized, oh my gosh, they're celebrating Sukkot. Or they either were getting ready to, or they just had celebrated Sukkot. So it's something that, that Jewish people continue to do to this day, and it's a really, really fun festival. Now, in Jewish, in Jesus' day, as I mentioned, those who were able to and lived close enough were expected to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this week-long festival at the temple. And during this particular festival, there was something very, very unique that happened at, uh, during the time of, of Jesus and through um, uh, 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. During this particular festival, there were these four enormous 75-foot lampstands that were erected in the court of the women in the temple grounds. Now, I want you to think about 75 feet. I'm about six feet tall, at least 12 times taller than me. Much bigger than, you know, much taller than the tallest point in the family uh, life center, for instance. Each of these four gigantic lampstands held four large golden bowls that were filled with oil. And ancient Jewish writings tell us that, that these were lit at nighttime. And when they were lit, they were so bright that they just lit up all of Jerusalem. 
And we need to remember, you know, this is before the days of, of artificial lighting, of electricity and so on. So people were accustomed to things being very dark at night in Jerusalem. But during the, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, these blazing, brilliant lights reflected off the yellow limestone walls of the temple and the city that surrounded it and the entire thing. Uh, was lit up. Next slide, please. Now, while, while light, this is very much what it would have looked like in, in ancient Jerusalem at that time. Now, while light and darkness, as we've seen, is a kind of a universal symbol, for the Jewish people, it had uh, and has special meaning in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, the psalmist, for instance, refers to the Lord God as my light and my salvation. And the, the same idea is reflected in the New Testament as well, where John, who is the author of the Gospel of John, the author of the three epistles of John, as well as the author of the book of Revelation, John sort of uh, reflects this same idea when he tells us in John First um, John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writes about uh, the time to come when, quote, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give, you light, give light to you by night, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And that same idea, we see that again. It's reflected in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 21, where John is writing about the new Jerusalem. After creation of the new heaven and new earth, there's a new Jerusalem that descends from, from heaven. And John writes of that, that there will be no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is the Lamb of God. It's referring to Jesus, God the Son. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. You see, what I'm trying to do here is to to demonstrate that there is this kind of thread that's woven all throughout Scripture, it refers to God as light, that refers to uh, Jesus as the light, uh, that refers to actually the Word of God as the light. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, the psalmist says. What is God's first act of creation according to Genesis chapter 1? You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth, and the, the Spirit hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The first act of creation, God, who is light, creates light, brings light into being. When Jesus is born, as we look at the uh, uh, infancy narratives, the birth narratives in, in the New Testament, when Jesus is born, uh, people remembered an, uh, a passage that they had cherished that was a promise of God through the prophet Isaiah, who said the people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and that's why we have a Christ candle, to symbolize Jesus, the light of the world. While light permeates the pages of both the Old and the New Testaments, and this is just a little sample, this is just suggestive, it's not exhaustive, there's so many passages that talk about the light of life and the light of God and the light of God's truth and so on. While light totally permeates the pages of both the Old and New Testaments, there's this one particular association of light with the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's go back to that. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booth, Sukkot, that is especially important if we want to understand what Jesus is saying here. Remember, the building of those booths was intended to help, is intended to this day, to help the Jewish people not only remember, but actually to relive, to kind of participate in their ancestors' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after they were freed from bondage in Egypt, before they enter into the promised land. Those four gigantic lampstands, why would those be associated? Why would they they associate the light, brilliance, these giant lampstands with the wilderness wandering? Well, those four gigantic lamps that gave light to all of Jerusalem were meant to symbolize the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. You remember the story of the pillar of fire? Um, God had uh, spoken when when Moses went into the tabernacle, sort of this temporary uh, tent-like structure that was something like, it sort of prefigured the temple. It's where uh, Moses would go to meet with God. There was always this pillar of fire that was present as Moses spoke with the Lord, Uh, and more of which later. But it's at this very moment, during this joyous festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was celebrated with the lighting of these four enormous lampstands, as this illumination spreads out all across Jerusalem and brings light to the darkness. It's at exactly this moment during this celebration that Jesus announces, I am the light of the world. That is not a coincidence. He chose that moment for an important reason. As God had promised through the prophet Isaiah, God had promised to his servant, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, for the goyim in Hebrew, for the nations, for the world. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You know, as Jesus stands there in the temple in the court of women, announcing that he is the light of the world. Nobody could have missed it. He is claiming once again, I am, that he is God, and 
I am the light of the world. He is the Messiah. Now today's text, John wants us to understand something. This is the big idea and it ought to be um, you know, kind of self-evident. Uh, but John really wants us to understand Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And what does that mean? Just as God was present with the people of Israel in the pillar of fire during that time of their wilderness wandering, God is present with us, with all who know and love and follow him through Jesus Christ. Now that that pillar of fire among the people of God uh, was meant to remind them in no uncertain terms, of at least three great truths. One of those great truths is this, that when the pillar of fire was present, it was to remind them that God was present with them. God was present with them. And not only is God present with them, God was protecting them. We read about in the... In the um, book of Exodus, how as the uh, Egyptian soldiers were pursuing the people uh, of Israel, that the uh, pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire uh, would uh, intervene and kind of um, God would place himself between the pursuing Egyptian armies and his own people to protect them. Not only that, uh, and really significantly for what Jesus has to say here, Uh, that pillar of fire also was saying that God was guiding them. More on which later. Uh, But we see exactly the same great truths extended to us. Now, it's not just the Jewish people. It's us who have become part of the people of God because of Jesus. We see those same great truths extended to us who are followers of Jesus Christ. What does Scripture tell us? Clearly, in Jesus Christ, God is with us. God is present with us. Um, You remember uh, the account in the Gospel of Matthew about the birth of Jesus. Um, In in Matthew's account, he tells us about how uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Because Joseph, when he learned that his... um, betrothed, his beloved Mary was going to have a child and he knew that it couldn't possibly be his, that he was thinking about quietly divorcing her. Um, But then the angel of the Lord explains what had taken place, that the child to be born to her uh, is through the Holy Spirit and so, so on. And Matthew writes, all this took place fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. We see this over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. Something happens, and Matthew reminds us, and this happened to fulfill prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus Christ, God is with us. God takes on human flesh. God the Son. It's the incarnation. God taking on human flesh. Uh, To remind us that um, 
you know, God is not a distant, disinterested deity that just kind of wound up the universe and then left it to run on its own, but that he is involved in the lives of his people. Now, having said that, I recognize, and you guys know this too, it doesn't always feel that way. You know, there are times when, um, when we may wonder, God, are you really present here? But the truth is, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are never alone. We're never alone. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. It's in Jesus that God fulfills his promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the close of the age. Um, As the light of the world, like the pillar of fire, not only is God present with us in Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ, God protects us. Protects us from anything that, that would uh, threaten to harm us. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to Christians. Because every one of us knows bad stuff happens to Christians. As a matter of fact, some bad stuff happens to Christians precisely because they are Christians. Persecution. Um, and, and so on. So what does it mean then to say God protects us if bad things still happen to us? Well, what it means is that no matter what happens to us, those bad things have no ultimate, no final power over us. Because as the Apostle Paul reminds us, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a powerful passage, and if you have not memorized this text, I really encourage you to do this. Romans 8, 38 uh, and 39. Hold on to this. This is a promise of God to you. The Apostle Paul writes, I am convinced, he's absolutely sure, sure and certain, that neither death nor life, let's just get death out of the way. That's the ultimate enemy, right? And he says, not death. Let's just scratch that at the beginning. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise. And it's a promise for for all of us. You may be going through a really tough time right now. But what you need to know is God will never leave you or forsake you. And that nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is yours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold on to that. Embrace it. Every problem has a limited lifespan. And ultimately, we will come to see Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over that problem that seems so big to you right now. Whether it's a financial problem, emotional problem, a relationship problem. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is there to protect us from anything that would threaten to, uh, to undo us. 
And like the pillar of fire, which said that God is present with us, like the pillar of fire that says God is present protecting us, Jesus is the light of the world who guides us. He guides us. You know, here's the the interesting thing about the pillar of fire, and and this is commanded. You can read about this in the Old Testament. When the pillar of fire moved, the people of Israel broke camp, and they got up and followed the pillar of fire. And when the pillar of fire stopped, the people stopped, and they set up camp, and they stayed there until the pillar of fire led them elsewhere once again. I think one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest blessings that comes from knowing Jesus Christ is the way that he lovingly lights our way. How he lovingly guides our steps. How he lovingly sets our course. This is why he says, whenever he calls his disciples, what's, what does he say? Follow me. Follow me. And, and here we come to another great truth that flows right out of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Listen to what he said. Whoever follows Jesus, whoever, and no one is excluded, whoever follows Jesus will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus is the light of the world. It's the fact that Jesus shines that light, sheds that light on everything around him. He illuminates everything around him, everything in the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, for those who follow Jesus Christ, will never walk in darkness again. What does that mean? It means that in Jesus, the truth isn't hidden. It isn't veiled. It isn't obscure. Jesus shines light on the world. We no longer have to be in the dark about who God is. We no longer have to be in the dark about what God is like. We no longer have to be in the dark about how to know God, how uh, the steps to take to be at peace with God. Jesus has revealed it to us. He has shed his light on all of those questions. When we find ourselves in a dark place emotionally, we can find comfort and, and even hope and redemption in knowing what Jesus has shed light on about us, about who we are in Christ. And you know who you are in Christ? You are children of God. You have been ransomed. You have been redeemed. You have been restored. You have been forgiven. And all because you have been everlastingly loved. That is what is most true about who you are. When you find yourself in a dark place, remember that. Remember who you are in Christ. It's not just uh, that God sheds his light on the world, sheds his light on who we are. We no longer need to fear the eternal 
darkness of death or what otherwise would have been the eternal darkness of death if we follow Jesus, the light of the world. Because he sheds light on as he brings his light to every situation that we have ever faced, every situation that we are facing right now. And I know that some of you are facing some tough stuff right now. You're struggling. You know, there's maybe stuff going on in your family that nobody knows about. You've got financial worries or you have health problems. Jesus sheds light on and brings his light to every situation. Every, every situation we've ever faced, anything that we are facing right now, anything that we will face in the future, up to and including death itself. See, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it is if he is saying that he makes sense of the world and our experience in it. He illuminates. He sheds his life on it. What C.S. Lewis said of, of Christianity is also true of Jesus Christ. If you were um, to travel to London and visit Westminster Abbey, it, it's one of those places that's kind of a must-see for, for folks who travel to the, the UK. Um, there are a lot of really famous people that are either buried in or remembered at, at Westminster um, Abbey. And one of those people is C.S. Lewis. In Poet's Corner, there is uh, a plaque. It's about that big. It says these words, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See that? Jesus is the light of the world. We not only see him as the light, but we see everything else in a new way because of the light that he sheds on it. Jesus gives us the capacity to see. And this fact, by the way, is underscored in the following chapter in the Gospel of John. This text, I am the light of the world, that's John chapter 8. In John chapter 9, just to kind of underscore and to highlight that truth, in John chapter 9, Jesus performs one of the four so-called messianic miracles. They were called the messianic miracles because it was believed that only the Messiah, they were so wildly impossible, only the Messiah could accomplish them. And what is that messianic miracle that Jesus performs? It's healing a man who was born blind. You know, this is the famous miracle where uh, Jesus takes uh, mud and spits on it, puts it in the guy's eyes, and then instructs him to go to the pool of Siloam. Uh, and what is the point of, of that great miracle and this great teaching? To remind us that Jesus opens our eyes. That he dispels the darkness. That he reveals the truth to us. Whoever follows me, whoever follows me, he says, will never walk in darkness. And by the way, I hope you don't, don't miss this, that that is what discipleship is. It's following Jesus. 
You know, that's what rabbi, how, how does Jesus call all of his disciples every single time? Come follow me. And that's what rabbis did. They, or disciples of rabbis did. They literally walked where their teacher walked. They stayed where their teacher stayed. They did as their teacher instructed. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, Jesus says. So one more thing that we don't want to miss in today's text. Jesus says, I am, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I want to call your attention, as I did kind of the way I, I read it, I want to call your attention that little world word, have. When we follow Jesus, we don't just see his light. We don't just see by his light. According to Jesus, we actually have something of his light. And those who have the light of life will shine that light on others. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's, it's no accident that Jesus, who, who saw himself as the light of the world, who announces himself during this uh, amazing festival that we looked at, to be the light of the world, that he elsewhere tells his followers in Matthew chapter 5, you ready for this? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So, he says, let your light so shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we are not, you are not the light of the world in the same way that Jesus is. You're not the light of the world because you are the third person of the Trinity. I hope, you know, sorry to break it to you. Uh, but you are the light of the world insofar as you reflect the light and the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus into the dark places in the world. That's why Jesus says, you're, that, let that light shine before others. And so, so the question that, that I really like to, to leave you with today, and it's a really, really important one, is this. You know, when people see you, do they see the light of Christ? When folks see you, do they see the light of Christ? Uh, do they feel God's love? Do they experience God's grace through you? You know, the, the truth is, and this is no news flash, um, the world can be a pretty dark place. We all know that. But the good news is that by God's grace, we can bring at least a little the light of God's love into life's dark places. That's why we light our candles from the Christ candle every Christmas Eve to remind ourselves of that. How do we get the light? Because somebody passes it to us. How does the next person get the light? Because we share the light with them. And you know what's amazing is how much light can be produced when each one of us, with our own little light, gathers together to make a difference in the world. 
You know, I, I'm, I, I know this for a fact. I am absolutely sure that you know somebody right now who's in a dark place. You know, they're, they're just going through a hard time. They've gotten some bad news. They are struggling in a relationship that means a lot to them. They're having money problems or health problems, whatever it is. You know people who are in, in a dark place. And the question that we always need to ask ourselves is, how can I bring a little bit of Christ's light into their darkness? You know, one of the things that, that took place uh, yesterday was a bunch of people from, um, from Stonebridge went over to Ashley Manor. Uh, and Ashley Manor, I'm not, it, it's not that Ashley Manor is a dark place. It's a, a lovely place. But, you know, people who live there can find themselves in their own personal dark place because they feel alone, they feel overwhelmed, uh, they might be grieving or, or struggling with something. And the cool thing is we had folks from our church go over there just to bring a little light into that darkness. And thank you guys for doing that. And in a large way, how, how can we, each one of us, share the light of God's love in the world today. And not just uh, with individuals. You know, I, I, I would argue that we are living in a, a period of time when our nation's really terribly divided. And I think one of the things that the church is, is called to do right now isn't to make those divisions deeper, but to help overcome those divisions by bringing light to the darkness by bringing civility back to our conversations, uh, about showing respect to other people, even if we disagree with their perspectives. Um, back in 1912, this is a little, little over 100 uh, years ago now, there's a, a little French magazine. It was put out by um, a group of Roman Catholics. This little magazine was called La Clochette, and it means the little bell. Uh, it published an anonymous poem. Uh, most people think that uh, it, it was probably written by uh, a French um, priest who contributed on kind of a regular basis to this little, little magazine. But uh, what's interesting is, uh, first appears in 1912, but over the years it's come to be called the Prayer of St. Francis. It's attributed to St. Francis even though there is no uh, evidence of it. It's not found in any of his writings. But the important thing is, it, it doesn't matter who wrote it. What matters is what it says. And, and this is a poem I have always loved. I think it really speaks to how we can bring light into darkness, into the world today. And one of the things I, I want to do is, rather than just read it to you, um, I want to invite you to read it with me. And to really, uh, as we read it together, um, to think of it as our prayer as a church and our prayer as followers of Jesus Christ, remembering the words of Jesus, I'm the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let your light so shine. How do we do that? Let's read this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. 
Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. You know, it was Jesus, the light of the world, who said to his followers, and you are the light of the world. So let your light so shine that other people can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.